What does it mean to be an American? The stories and habits of mind that bind us together as a people. For most Americans growing up in the 50s, the answers were pretty simple. We were hardworking and freedom-loving, rugged individualists with a can-do spirit. We opened up the frontier and built mighty industries and allowed everybody to get their piece of the American dream. We were on the right side of history, having defeated Hitler and liberated Europe. We now stood sentinel against a godless, totalitarian communism to make the world safe for democracy. We watched the same TV shows and listened to the same radio programs. We loved westerns and baseball, hot dogs and apple pie, fast cars, and Fourth of July parades. That's the story we told ourselves, anyway. But it wasn't the whole story. It left a bunch of stuff out whether it was the continuing discrimination against black and brown people or all the ways that women were still expected to stay in their place or some of the ugly realities of our foreign policy during the Cold War. Bruce and I came of age as young people were challenging a lot of America's most cherished myths about itself. The result was a growing and bitter divide in the country, a political and culture war that, in a lot of ways, we're still fighting today. But before we got into the heavy stuff, I got behind the wheel of the vintage Corvette that Bruce keeps in his barn, and we went for a little joyride, one that didn't make my Secret Service detail all that happy. For us, it was a symbol of our shared all-American love affair with the open road. tried to get him to go to freehold, but... <laughs> that was you know, it. We're late. It's Bruce's fault. It is. Uh, everybody set? Everybody's ready, I assume. Okay. 
So a theme in a lot of your songs, a theme in a lot of rock and roll is this idea of the open road and traveling right out of where you've been to and 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 towards the horizon and maybe right. not knowing where it is that you're going that's right and that's tied to ideas of freedom and it's tied to ideas of remaking yourself right shedding your skin freeing yourself from your past and your constraints uh and 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 engaging in the act of of recreation, self-invention. The act of driving the car is it's a it's a it's a direct aggressive act upon the world, you know. It's a, <laughs> and and it was just funny because I did not drive until I was twenty-four. Didn't really? drive the car. Huh. Hitchhiked everywhere I went from no. fourteen to twenty-four. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't uh, think to yourself, "Man, I got to try to get some wheels." Uh, did you not have a license, or I didn't you just have, have a, a car? I did not have a license, and I did not know how to drive. Let me just say, can I? Can I just interrupt to say it is a good thing that you ended up being a rock star, because <laughs> otherwise, it seems to me like you're kind of a shy. Uh, you know, not that well-adjusted kid, man. <laughs> I mean, sh- like I wasn't a big car guy, but sh- <laughs> shit, I was, I was going, I was going to get my license, and I was going, I was so, I, so that I could get out on the road. Well, I was out on the road, but I was out on You're the road with just me and my thumb, and uh, for about literally ten years, from when I was fourteen, I had two albums out. I was still hitchhiking myself around. I didn't have a car. Well, what are you what are you doing with girls, man? They got cars. You know, they had cars or I mean, you have to understand, I'm going all the way from Asbury Park to Seabright, which is a freehold. It's a total of about 15 miles, you know. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I don't have a trip to go on. Except my first actual trip, which was a trip to California. I took in, it was a 48 Chevy, similar to the one that's in my garage over there. And it was just me and another guy. And we lost all the guys behind us who were the drivers. They were in a station wagon with a mattress in the back, sleeping and resting and driving. They got lost in Nashville. There's no cell phones. You can't call somebody up to find out where they are. In those days when somebody was lost, that was it. You, you weren't going to hear them again until you got to California. We were going to California thousands of miles away. So we had three days to make it to a gig we had in Big Sur. To make it in three days, you cannot stop driving. So the nightfall came and my buddy said, hey, it's your turn. <laughs> You're gonna get us killed, man. I can't drive this friggin', I can't drive a car, I'm not gonna drive this friggin' truck. He says, no, if we don't drive, we don't get there in time. If we don't get there in time, we don't get paid. If we don't get paid, we don't have any money because it's taking us all our money to get across the damn country. So I got behind the wheel. 
four-speed manual, gear shift, big old 48 Chevy flatbed with all of our equipment piled in the back, right? <laughs> <laughs> how, many, how many times did you strip the gears? Before? Oh, many. <laughs> then I, all, all your gears, <laughs> so finally, you go, hey man, I can't, I can't handle this. Yeah, so the guy says, wait a second, I got an idea. He gets in the driver's seat, puts it in the first, gets us rolling. Let's switch seats. We switch seats. And you drive in first. I, I'm driving, I didn't, no, I'm, I'm driving, as long as the truck is going, now I can go from first to second, oh, okay. third, you, got before, it. you know. I'm, I'm all right shifting in between those gears. Yeah. So we, I, I may drive 100 miles at a pop like that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because out in the middle of the country, you can do that, yeah. you know? And I did that, and I did it for two days, and that was how I learned how to drive. Right. But no, I, 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 my own experience outside of what I have written in song uh, was a lot more ten tentative when it came to driving. You know? <laughs> uh, I didn't have all, I got all these cars in this garage now, uh, you know, you were just tearing up the highway in my Corvette, but uh, I, I couldn't drive. I couldn't fix the car if it broke down, but I knew what they were about. Right? I knew what they symbolized. Escape. Right. I knew the statement they made. You know, this was a moment when, A, America still felt very, very big. Very big. And the road was romantic. But it was also, I was very interested in, in writing music using classic American images and reinventing them for what at that time were the 70s. The 60s, yeah, the Beach Boys, Chuck Berry, all right, Cars and Girls, Cars and Girls. So I wanna write about Cars and Girls because I wanna write classic rock and roll music. And so I took those images and I, the main thing I did is I used those images, but I filled my songs with the dread that was in the air during the 70s during the Vietnam War. The country was no longer innocent. The country was no longer wide open. Uh, it was an age, a new age of limits. Gas crisis, lines at the, at the stations. So I, uh, I presented all of my characters in the context of those same images, but in a new American age. How did they resonate? Much darker. Where were people going? They weren't sure where they were going. Who were they becoming? They weren't sure who they were becoming. All of these ideas I had to place in those cars with my characters 
and try to get them to sort them out. So for me, part of the essential aspect of, of being an American is getting out of where you are. <laughs> now, where I am is paradise in Hawaii, right? Yeah, you want to get out. So you're you're <laughs> somehow thinking, man, I got I got to get on the open road. Except and you're on the an road, island. The, the, the road only goes so far. <laughs> I remember the first. Uh, the first time that I visited the mainland of the United States, yeah. I was uh, my my mother and my grandmother decided that it was time for me to see it, and so the two of them, me and my then two year old sister, mm -hmm. we fly first to Seattle, which is where my mom had gone to high school. We take the Greyhound bus down to San Francisco, mm -hmm. L.A. And then take the train to Arizona. A place where the sky is blue beyond fathoming. Kansas City, up to Chicago. Chicago is something you've just got to see for yourself. Rent a car, go to Yellowstone. Oldest, mm -hmm. largest, and one of our most beautiful vacation lands is Yellowstone. National My mother didn't drive, she didn't have a license. Right. My grandmother drove, but she's starting to go a little blind. Okay. So I, I remember being put in the front seat at around twilight so that I can direct my grandmother <laughs> properly as we're hitting some of these turns in yeah. the road. And what you were talking about, the country being so big. I mean, I remember looking out of Greyhound buses and looking out of trains sure. and looking out of car windows and just miles of corn or miles of desert or miles of forests or miles of mountains and just thinking, man, imagine where you can go. You can go anywhere. And by implication, you can do anything and be anybody, right? right? And and that first road trip, which I, I, I still remember, and, and you know, we'd stop at You'll Howard Johnson's. Being a kid is more fun at Howard Johnson's. All the excitement was the, the ice machine, and and you know uh, uh, your mom or your grandma springing for yeah. a, a can of soda. Right. And if you were really lucky, a couple of them had a little pool in the back. Loved it. And if if, if, there, if there was a pool, that that was <laughs> heaven on earth. That's man. that was it. <laughs> you man, that was luxury. You were closer to the President of the United States more often than probably any other person in the world outside his immediate family. What did the President know and when did he know it? I've tried to tell that. It, it, this is 72, so this is in the middle of the Watergate hearings. So every night, the Watergate, uh, my mom would turn on the little black and white set that was in the motel. Mm -hmm. And we'd sit there and I'd be watching Sam Irvin and. Right. Danny and Noye, we were very proud because Danny and Noye was on the committee, uh, and he was yeah. uh, he was the senator from Hawaii, right? Um, a, a, a World War II hero, only had right. uh, one arm, and uh, 
And that probably had, was somewhat formative in my politics, right? Because my mother's saying, you know, the whole time, what do you expect? You know, the guy was a McCarthyite, you know. But that set of memories, I never lost. And it was- Nice memories. And it was consistent with my own sense that as much as I loved Hawaii, I was going to have to go on some sort of journey in order to find out who I was. I remember when I was in college, you know, I got an old beat up Fiat, terrible car. Mm -hmm. And I'd just go driving. It was broke in the shop probably once every uh, two weeks, but it zipped around when it was, when it was working, five shift. And uh, I remember it breaking down on highways between LA and San Francisco and me having to hitchhike with truckers and, you know, get off on the clover leaf and yeah. it's pouring down rain and, and you don't have a cell phone, you don't have any money, maybe you got a little bit of change, you got to find a pay phone, see if you're going to be able to get a friend of yours who's in town to come pick you up and try to look around to see if where, what street you're on. And, but at each juncture, at each juncture, there was always that sense of, which I do think is essentially American, of you go on the road to discover that's like a, Ulysses, like, like, right? Like, like, that's right. It's a hegira. It's a, it's a trip to discover your soul. You, you are finding out what you're made of. That's right, who you are. And, and it's full of surprises and adventures. But what's also true is that you get on the road and then at a certain point, what you realize is, yes, you can remake yourself. Yes, you can find yourself. But at the end of the day, you still have this longing for a home and a place. And the, the tension of America is this sense of, we want to remake ourselves and, and, and reinvent ourselves and be free, but we also want a neighborhood. And there's a loneliness to the road that- Oh man. The darker side of that, the road is that that drifter, that lonely, unrooted, unmoored well, that place. Was, and, and that, what we were talking about the other day about masculinity and, and, and icons, those were the icons that were being sold to us. Western heroes, they were lonely. They were never fathers, never husbands, always passing through. Yeah, those cowboys, Gary Cooper, Clint Eastwood, always passing Shane, high plains, <laughs> high plains drifter, drifter. <laughs> <laughs> right? Drifter, yeah. you know. And the ultimate example of this is in John Ford's The Searchers, where you have John Wayne, who's a misanthrope. He has a series of violent skills that he can use to impact and preserve the community. But he can't join the community. There's this profound scene at the end of The Searchers where John Wayne finds Natalie Wood after the whole movie, brings her back to the family. The whole family runs inside the house. The door closes and John Wayne is in the doorway. And the door and community itself closes on him. And he is left walking off into the desert 
And that's the final shot of the film. As a young man, I felt like this a lot. And I tried to live that out well into my 30s until literally I was driving across the country with a friend of mine. And we'd taken several trips. I'd been across the country a bunch of times, but I always enjoyed it. I said, if I had the blues, man, those miles could just, I'd just roll those blues away, you know? But I got to California and uh, I felt terrible. I felt like I wanted to get in the car and go back. But then I knew, but if I did that, I'd want to get in the car and come back again. I truthfully didn't want to stop moving. And something felt really broken inside of me. And that's when I called a friend. I called John. I said, I'm having some real problems. He got me a number. I went into a gentleman's office and I'd never seen before in my life in Beverly Hills or the Pacific Palisades somewhere in LA. I looked at him. He was a little old man with white hair and a mustache. There was an empty chair. I sat down in it and I just broke out and cried for 10 minutes. And it was these two chickens coming home to roost. The desire to quote, in theory, be free, but the deep need now at my age for roots, family, a real home, a spiritual home, the need to stop running, to claim, to make choices. I'm going to be with you for my life. I'm going to live here during my life. I'm going to work this job during my life. And these are the things I'm committed and I'm committing myself to. Our love, our endeavors, our place. I ran into a moment in my life when I needed to make those choices in order to live on and to have a life, to have a life, you know. It, it, my life changed on that day. And shortly later, I got married. Uh, didn't work out the first time. Then I, but shortly after that, I, I met Patty and built a home and realized, hey, you know, I didn't, I still got out there on the road. I had the motorcycles out there once in a while, go a couple of thousand miles and come back. And uh, now I don't feel much like it anymore. Though you and I could jump in that Corvette and go to Route 66, though Michelle and Patty might kick our asses right there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how far we'd get. <laughs> you know, look, the uh, that idea of being domesticated yeah. is something that part of the American character, particularly American male character, is taught to resist. Yeah. And yet, contrary to the song of a, a great American master, uh, we're generally not born to run. <laughs> Uh, most of us are born to run a little bit and then go back home. That's right. 
Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so for me, Michelle and Chicago, you know, Chicago first became my home, and then Michelle became an embodiment of that connection I had made to a place and a community. And the interesting thing is by virtue of finding that place, I was then actually able to understand Hawaii as also my place. Yeah. Because now I could see uh, how uh, all the various parts of me fit together. So one of the things we talk about a lot, Bruce, is what is it that is essentially American? What's what's uniquely American? And and you and I, we've talked about this. You would through your music, me through my politics. You know, part of what we've been trying to do is to define a vision of this country and our part in it, our place in it. Do you remember a moment when you just thought consciously, I'm an American, and, and, and that is part of my identity? I think uh, my first recollection of it would be at 8 a.m. every morning at St. Rolls School. I pledge allegiance to the flag. Of the United States of America. Of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Facing the flag, you got your hand over your heart. That, I think, was when I first identified myself and thought there was a sacredness about being, a, being an American. For me, another big moment was the space program. T minus 10, Nine, eight, we have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. Four, three, two, one, zero. And the reason it was especially important was because the Apollo program, when the capsules land on those parachutes in the middle of the Pacific, they get brought to Hawaii. So I remember one of my earliest memories is sitting on my grandfather's shoulders with one of those little American flags you're talking about. Yeah. And I, I guarantee you that we were probably so far back and where the capsule and the astronaut, my grandfather would be like, yeah, that's, you know, Neil Armstrong waved at you. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm sure that wasn't the case, but in your memory, you thought, I'm a fellow countryman of that guy right. who was just in space. That's what we do. Well, we're just pleased to be back and we look, look forward to getting out of this quarantine and, and uh, right. talking without having class right. between us. And then for me, the interesting thing was, at six, I go overseas. Ironically, one of, one of the ways that uh, I became strongly patriotic was being outside the country. Because now 
you realize what we have. So my mother would explain that where we're living in Indonesia, this is a military government. But in America, you elect people and right. everybody has a voice. Now, it was mythologized, it was idealized, how she portrayed it, but you start getting this idea of, all right, we are this experiment in democracy where everybody's got a voice and nobody's better than anybody and nobody's worse than anybody. And when you're living in a country at the time, Indonesia, you still had scurvy and rickets and polio and and you'd try to explain to your friends over there you know back in the states we take care of those people and and you know there was a sense of superiority total that, exceptionalism yeah. and exceptionalism that got us in all kinds of trouble but as a kid right it made you feel as if i'm glad that i was born under this flag i'm a part of that i'm a part know. of it yeah, I mean, as a child, you know, I simply thought you were living in the greatest place on earth. And uh, first disturbance, I think of that would would have been the duck and cover drills when the nuclear, you know. Yeah, I've missed those. That signal means to stop whatever you are doing and get to the nearest safe place fast. The first sense of dread and paranoia. And I remember being 13 during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1963, and people were really scared. And they should have been. That the world was going to blow up, <laughs> you know? Let me tell you, when you look at the history of how that went down, that was a close call. Yeah. Then a little later on, you know, you started to have the Cultural Revolution. And it's funny because I've... As you were talking about the space program, I became a real space program buff as I got older. Yeah. But in 1969, I was a 19-year-old kid playing in a bar in Asbury Park the night they landed on the moon. And we were like, fuck the moon landing, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the a, man. It's a trick of the man. It's the man. And we don't want to have anything to do with it. At nine o'clock, we're playing these fucking guitars, and that's all there is to it. So the place, the place had about 50 people in it. 25 wanted to watch the moon landing right. on television. And 25 wanted the band to play. And all we did was stand on stage. They had the little black and white TV, the moon landing was stuck. People would run up to the, to the band and go, play it, Mr. Play some damn music, man. And then we start to play, and everybody around us, Mr. Johnson, I got boys, you know. <laughs> and finally, I had a bass player that was a bit of a techie, and he said, you guys are freaking rubes, man. I quit. I'm watching the movie. <laughs> In the middle of the set. In the middle of the set. And he was right. And he was right. Come on, man. Yeah, I know. He was right. Yeah. He walked off. And that was the end of it, man. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, I look back on, you know, we were all idiots at the time. But, uh, but it was So how, 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 was did, how, did, how did you... There's a little bit of a generation gap uh, for, for the two of us here because I see the counterculture at the tail end of it. It's, it's already kind of washing away. Right. Uh, but the break in 
67, 68, once you start getting the Vietnam protests and civil rights, civil movement. rights movement, there's a big shift there. How is that feeling to you? I think there was a period of, of real disillusionment, you know? Um, I don't remember, I was, I was young, I was 65, 15, 66, 16, 16. I felt like an outsider anyway because of the life that I'd chosen. And I kind of, I played my part in the cultural, uh, countercultural community partly because I was young. I wasn't really, I was kind of a faux hippie. I wasn't really a hippie. I always kept one foot in sort of a blue collar world and, and, and one foot in the counterculture world. And I never truly belonged completely in, in either of them, you know? But you did get a feeling that the system was fixed and prejudiced towards a lot of its citizens. Now, you uh, were of draft age. I was. So so what happened with your <laughs> draft number or? Yeah, yeah, what happened to me was uh, I, my aunt pulled some strings and got me into a community college. Right. So for, I had one year of being in the community college. Right, so you had a college deferment. I met a guy in New York City, wanted to sign me to a record label deal. 19, thought I died and went to heaven. I said, he said, you gotta quit school if you're serious about this. I had no problem quitting school whatsoever. Glad to, <laughs> but, <laughs> but if I do, right. I'm gonna be drafted. Right. No worries. I have it completely fixed, you know? It's, it's not a big deal. Right. Okay, go home, I tell my parents, I'm quitting school. Music is what I want to do with my life. They gave me their blessing, even though reluctantly. And I quit school. And about a few months later, two or three months later, I got my draft notice in the mailbox. <laughs> this would have been 1969. Yeah, so this is just right in the thick of it. Yeah, so I said, I gotta get my man on the line in New York. Um, I was never able to get him on the phone again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Never answered another call. Did not, did, not, did not answer. Not another call. So, believe it or not, me and two other guys from my band get drafted on the exact same day. All three of us. In the band? Yeah. All three of us are going on the bus to Newark, bright and early, we all meet in the parking lot outside of the Asbury Selective Service Office. Everybody's lined up. It's about 80% young black guys from Asbury Park, maybe 20% white guys who, you know, just young blue collar guys, factory workers, just guys who weren't in college. Yeah. The, guy, the guys who get drafted. That's right. Boom, we're all on the bus. We're going up. Some guys have got some tricks up their sleeves. You know, one guy had a big body cast on that he confided in to me was not completely authentic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, I know one thing and one thing only. I'm going to Newark and I'm coming home. Whatever that takes, that's what I'm going to do for a variety of reasons. One, I don't believe in the war. 
1969, not many people did anymore. Mm-hmm. Two, I'd see my friends die. Three, I didn't want to die. So we get there and I pull out every trick I have in the book. I am, I'm signing out, I'm signing, you know, the papers are, I'm totally screwing up the papers. As far as they know, I am- uh, Mentally deficient. A gay drug taking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you name it. Uh, guitar playing, uh, brain concussed, which I was. I'd been in a terrible motorcycle accident about seven months before, and I had a brain concussion. And at the end of the day, you walk down the long hall, and it's a long day, particularly if you're pulling a bunch of bullshit, <laughs> which right. is exactly what I was doing. And at that point, the guys, they, they've seen every trick. They've, they've I mean, seen, it's not like you're original. At 19, no, you're, not, you're not thinking of anything new I, I that am they not, haven't seen 100 you know? times. So... I'm expecting, you know, you go down a long hall. It's an empty hall. There's a guy at a desk, looks up at you, says, sorry, Mr. Springsteen. You've been rejected for the armed services. Did you crack a smile or did you look sober and sad? Very sober and sad. <laughs> I said, oh. Why? And they said, uh, you, can, you can leave this way. So I left. I went out the door, and it was me and a bunch of the guys that were on the bus. Well, I don't know what they did, but they got out too. And there was a party on the freaking street in Newark, New Jersey, <laughs> with a bunch of guys who were glad that they just got out of the- What, a, what happened to the other guys in the band? Everybody got out. Interesting. And I got out on a 4F, which was uh, for the brain concussion. Right. You know, the other guys got out on mental deferments for pulling stunts that were <laughs> as outrageous or more than, than what I was pulling. And these were the times, you know, this is, I had no doubt that I was not going to go. You know, the, the interesting thing for me was because there was not an active war as I'm entering into being a teenager and then right. as a result, um, the controversies around Vietnam are not formative in my head. Right. Right. I know them as history, but I don't experience them. By the time I became president, I think something very valuable had happened. Uh, and I think this was a hard learned lesson from Vietnam. The American public had come to recognize and revere the service of our troops, even those who were critical of certain aspects of U.S. military mm-hmm. interventions. And you know, when you hear stories from the Vietnam era, you know, you know, as 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 I listened to you talking about the draft and Vietnam and you losing friends and and just the the way the country was being torn apart around that war. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to friends who did go and come home and discovered that they were 
called baby killers and spat on, and and they became somehow the objects of particularly young people's rejection of that war, when in fact they were kids who were expressing their patriotism, duty. The soldiers at the time, I know a lot of the vets, and they were ignored and, 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 and mistreated for a long time as symbols of, quote, the only war America has ever lost. And that, I think, was, was an important maturing of America mm-hmm. in, in, in being able to distinguish between policies made by men in suits in Washington versus the professionalism and sacrifice and right. courage shown by those who actually fought. This was a major thing. This was the first time I remembered life that I felt the country had lost its way, right. completely lost its way. Uh, through the loss of my friends and my own experience, you know. Uh, It was the loss of innocence. Renegades Born in the USA is a Spotify original presented and produced by Higher Ground Audio in collaboration with Dustlight Productions. From Higher Ground Audio, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Joe Paulson are executive producers. Carolyn Lipka and Adam Sachs are consulting producers. Janae Marable is our editorial assistant. From Dustlight Productions, Misha Youssef and Arwen Nix are executive producers. Elizabeth Nakano, Mary Knopf, and Tamika Adams are producers. Mary Knopf is also editor. Andrew Epen is our composer and mix engineer. Rainier Harris is our apprentice. Transcriptions by David Rodriguez. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, the Dustlight Development and Operations Coordinator. Daniel Eck. Don Ostroff and Courtney Holt are executive producers for Spotify. Gimlet and Lydia Polgreen are consulting producers. Music supervision by Search Party Music. From the great state of New Jersey, special thanks to John Landau, Tom Zimney, Rob LeBret, Rob DeMartin, and Barbara Carr. We also want to thank Adrian Gerard, Marilyn Laverty, Tracy Nurse, Greg Lynn, and Betsy Whitney. And a special thanks to Patty Scalfa for her encouragement and inspiration. And to Evan, Jess, and Sam Springsteen. From the District of Columbia, thanks to Christina Shockey, Mackenzie Smith, Katie Hill, Eric Schultz, Caroline Adler-Morales, Maron Heli-Mescal, Alex Platkin, Kristen Bartoloni, and Cody Keenan. And a special thanks to Michelle, Malia, and Sasha Obama 
This is Renegades, born in the USA. 